Scuba Obsessed, the weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear to places a dive and scuba in the news. Scuba Obsessed, episode 434, is recorded live January 16th, 2020. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Chilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan. Joining me this week, we have Mac the Dive Mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well. I'm glad to be here. And we also have Kevin Ailes joining us again this week. How are you doing today, Kevin? I'm doing most excellent, Darren, and thank you for having me on this evening. And we also have a special guest tonight. We have Nick Lewinsky joining us from Ford Seahorses. How are you doing today, Nick? Doing well. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And uh, so this is going to be, this is going to start out as an interview episode tonight. And then afterwards, we'll slide right on into the news that's become the custom. So, uh, Nick, uh, I understand that you are the, uh, I don't know, we call you Chief Poobah or head uh, organizer for the Ford Seahorses? Um, no, not quite the head organizer, just one of the, uh, one of the many. Um, I happen to run the website and work on the Facebook with a group of us. Okay. So when is that show coming up? The show is coming up February 29th. It is our 39th show, and it is in Ann Arbor at the Washtenaw Community College. It's a uh, day-long program where we have um, multiple different presenters from all over North America come and give talks on diving-related topics, and shipwreck-related topics. Now, I know that at a lot of these uh, shipwreck programs, uh, parking can be a bit of a challenge, uh, you know. But what's the parking like in the uh, for, for the Ford Seahorses show? We have plenty of free parking available. There's, awesome. It is a massive parking lot there at the community college. Is this where it's been held traditionally? So if somebody had gone four or five years ago, is this the, still the same location? Uh, yes, it has been the location for some time, um, and it is the location this year. We may be changing locations next year due to Washington doing some updates and some construction, but as of right now, it is the location for this year and moving forward. Excellent, excellent. All right, so I've been watching your uh, website unfold with the uh, different presenters coming up. Can you uh, give us a little bit of information about who's going to be talking and talking on what? Yeah, so we have a uh, a very good variety of different topics. Um, we have Cal Cothred. He is going to be talking about the uh, W.C. Kimball, which was a, a new find this year. He, he listed as the most intact schooner he has ever seen, and it is over 300 feet deep. Him and uh, with Ross Richardson, they were able to find it, document it, and do some dives on it and do some ROV work. Yeah, I've seen the videos on that, and that is just just jaw dropping impressive. There, I mean, that is a, a shockingly intact wreck. I mean, the the masts are still up on it, the rigging's all there. I mean, uh, you know, that is an awesome shipwreck. I mean, of course, they're not going to tell us where it's at. Bummer, but you know, <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, and I'm looking forward to hearing how that wreck went down because for it to be for that intact in the Great Lakes, I mean, as most most of you would know, when the schooners go down, they typically get like an air pocket in the aft cabin and then it blows off or the rudder turns hard to the hard to the left or the right. And when it smacks the bottom, the bowsprit snaps off, the mass snap off. So it'd be really interesting to hear how this went down because it, it had to go down really slowly for it to yeah. not have the damage. Yeah, and it's it's in pretty deep water. I mean, generally, you know, if, if they go down deep, then, then they get a <laughs> – they're able to gain some speed and they hit the bottom pretty hard. But uh, this one here uh, apparently went down like a feather for some reason. I'd, I'd be curious to find out why it went down so lightly. Because, yeah, it's, the, the pictures are incredible, this ship. You guys can find them online if you like. Actually, I'll poke around a bit here online, and I'll see if I can add some stuff in the chat room about that wreck, because that's a really cool find. Yeah, and we have all this information is up on our website at uh, the Great Lakes Shipwreck org, And you can see a, a total list of all the speakers and a brief synopsis of all the shows that they're presenting at the show. So it's, yeah. it's always a good place. That's where the newest information um, is always updated, put on there. It's put on our Facebook. Check us out on Facebook and get and get some of the information. But, I mean, that's just one of the many shows that we have. Um, Rick Mixter, who's always popular here in the Great Lakes, a uh, originally a telecaster from, I believe it was Flint area, did a lot of work with PBS. He's coming to talk about... Uh, the most famous shipwreck of all. And we have Kevin Ailes. He's going to be talking about the buoy project there. You want to speak on that a little bit, Kevin, maybe? Well, yeah. Um, you know, here in the, in the uh, Great Lakes, the uh, Mission Art Winter Preserve Council has a project now to uh, buoy up to 186 shipwrecks throughout the, throughout the area. Uh, it's a very labor-intensive program, uh, but it's going to protect the shipwrecks from further anchoring damage, also give a uh, safer access for scuba divers. This is really a win-win program here, um, but we are in need of some help. You know, like I say, we do need a lot of volunteers on this. A lot of people work behind the scenes on this. Uh, you know, we're, we're just kind of getting this up and running here. We, this is actually, I believe, our fifth year of the project, but, uh, you know, we've only got, you know, just a fraction of those done so far. You know, these are the uh, same kind of buoys you've most people have seen up at the Straits. You know, these are the large, full-size, navigational, lighted buoys. And they're not cheap, um, but they uh, they are effective, and they make a magnificent place to, to moor your boat, too. So, uh, you know, come on out here about it. Uh, I'm going to give examples of, um, you know, shipwrecks, well, ships which could have been better protected, which, you know, would have really benefited from this program, you know, decades ago. Um, give some examples of some ships which uh, we'd love to see buoyed, which we're kind of concerned about that need protection. So, uh, you know, it's going to be a very involved program. It's not going to be just technical buoy stuff. It's going to be a lot of stuff about, about shipwrecks and why we love our shipwrecks here and why we're so proud of them. Yeah, I know a lot of work goes into those buoys. I mean, they're to get people to uh, get them out every year and bring them back in. And I know on all the different preserves, that's always a, a lot of work that's done mostly by volunteers. Yeah, it it is all volunteers. I mean, uh, but it's really cool in that uh, you know, we finally have a way to do this where they these buoy these buoys are 
100% legal and, uh, you know, we're not having to worry about getting sued over any damage happening out there. Uh, like I say, the buoys all be, are all being paid for by contributions. Uh, this project does not get any funding from the state, um, which is kind of surprising, but uh, that's just kind of the way it works right now, I'm afraid. So, mm-hmm. uh, and, and they are definitely a lot easier to find than a tide, book, tide jug. <laughs> That's a fact. You got that right. They're, they're a little bit more pricey than a Tide jug, though. <laughs> no, but uh, well, I mean, we wouldn't we wouldn't moor anything. Anything left moored would be temporary with a Tide jug. Mm-hmm. Make that clear. Nothing's permanently moored unless it's approved by the state and such. Yeah, yeah. It's just that uh, you know, with, with this program finally coming out here, because uh, it, it's. There's been a lot of interest in the past in mooring these things, and you know there were things which would just kind of pop up on their own out there. But uh, I'm afraid those days with legality, liability, and the whatnot are coming to an end. And uh, you know we're going to be continuing to buoy stuff here. We got we got to do it the right way though, and we're getting this project rolling. And you know there's a there is a system in place for the preserves to do this now it's just that we have to get you know the preserves on board with it you know that the, the the preserve council oversees all is fully on board with this we do have a few preserves though which are currently inactive and i'm hoping we can get those preserves you know restaffed again up and running here and uh you know get this this project uh, fully underway as of right now i want to say we only have about Oh, maybe 30 of those wrecks. I'm not sure about what the number is. I probably shouldn't even guess at it, really. I know that the Straits has quite a few of them. I know that the West Michigan Water Preserve, just to the north of us, which runs from Port Sheldon up to Ludington, uh, they've been kicking butt on this. They've got, I think, about 10 different wrecks buoyed up there now. Uh, the Straits has, oh, at least a dozen that they're buoying up there right now. Um uh, you know, this preserve, the Southwest, which I manage, just uh, got uh, on the program just last year. And we buoyed two last year. We're going to buoy two more this year. And we'll, we'll keep on tackling it, two buoys at a time. One problem we have here in the Southwest is that the majority of our wrecks are deep enough to require the large full-size navigational buoy. Uh, when you're deeper than 40 feet, you have to have a much larger, more expensive system. Whereas the the West is very fortunate, also the Straits, is that um, some of the stuff is more shallow, and so you can put together a much more economical system there. Uh, you know, a lot of their systems are only running them around $300 for tackle and buoying the whole thing, and most of ours are running us about four times that much around here. Yeah, I know. I think some of the ones in Erie, too, they have uh, they actually are not moored to the wreck. They're moored to a concrete um mooring block near the wreck and i know those were a a significant cost to to moor near the wreck not on the wreck yeah and we don't actually want to uh you know moor to the wreck anymore uh you know all of these moorings which end up being put on the wrecks at some point will work their way loose will actually do damage to the shipwreck uh it's not a good thing you know um there's plenty of these boats, which, you know, yeah, we, we've dove up there and seen where the uh, mooring was hooked up to the, uh, you know, to the railing or something on a boat. But eventually that railing gets yanked off. And so we are damaging the shipwrecks with it this way. And if they don't have a mooring on them, then 
boats are tempted to, you know, hook the wreck, you know, drop their mm-hmm. anchor so it actually falls in the shipwreck. And these these boats have been down there for a long time, you know, and they were very heavily built. But, you know, it's really a shame to see that how, yeah, over time, these anchors do move the wood around, do break things loose. You know, we do one of the wrecks I'm going to show up there is one which, uh, unfortunately, we cannot protect right now because it's not in the preserve. We have a magnificent shipwreck that I'm not going to give a lot of details on. I'll show some good pictures of it, though, which uh, it's not protected right now. And one stray anchor would pull that entire pilot house off this wreck. And because the the numbers are getting out about this wreck, uh, we're very much concerned about being damaged. You know, uh, yeah, we need to get this program rolling. We need to support the dive community. And uh, this is going to be a great win for the for the, for the the uh, dive community, though. I mean, it's going to make it so much easier to visit a shipwreck now. But I probably shouldn't plug that program the whole time here. <laughs> this is all about <laughs> more about the the show in general than just about, about my so, presentation so that was, here. That so. was just a preview into your uh, your speech. Well, I gotta you. save. I gotta save something for the program here. You know, I mean, you guys can't hear it all here. Come on, <laughs> can't give it all away. Mm-mm. So, you know, and it, it's topics like that. Um, Cal's talk on the WC Kimball, and then we get into stuff like uh, we have Lamar Hires from uh, Dive Right, who's coming up from Florida, and he's going to talk about some of uh, cave diving history. So, some of the legends and lore from from cave diving and where where things come from. Um, out of the cave diving community and he's going to do a talk on how cave diving has influenced wreck diving and and where technical diving as a whole is going because as as we know a lot of a lot of technical diving um gear setup has come out of cave diving so and then you know we we get into technical talks like that and then um you know to go, to bounce back to wrecks Terry Irvine is going to be talking about the CPR 694. Are you guys aware of that one, the locomotive? Yeah, that was in the news a while back. That's that uh, train that came off the tracks up in Lake Superior. Pretty deep, isn't it? Yeah, it actually is. I I was diving um, a few years ago with a a buddy, and he was working with them on the expedition. It was actually part of the Explorers Club. they kind of knew the area where it went off and where it went off is just a steep drop down. And so they were not, but maybe 50, 60 feet offshore. I think he said at the time working their way down the, down the wall and they had found some of the um, rail cars and stuff, but they had yet to find the locomotive. And I, I believe they found the locomotive somewhere around 300 ish. Um, don't quote me. Come and come and see Terry's talk, and I'm sure he will have the depths of it. But they they found it, and the video and pictures of that are just amazing. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing that program there. I, I you know you read about these things on the news and you see them online, but it's always so much better to hear the program from the people who were there, the people who found the thing. It's you know, and you know, also after the. In between the programs, the presenters are there. So if you have any questions you want to ask, you know, them. And, you know, and most of these people, I mean, they're very down-to-earth, realistic, nice people to chat with. You might have to stand in line a bit, talk to them there. But if you hang around, you'll, you'll definitely get your shot. Yep. And a lot of our a lot of our presenters, they, you know, they 
are have wrote books or have produced documentaries and and they typically have all that stuff available and you know what better chance to get your book autographed by the uh by the author and have a chat with them about the book and about the different topics so now i see you've got bob mcgreevy coming in there talking about uh that shipwreck the the, uh, the griffin that's one that seems to get a lot of attention. Can you tell us a bit about his program? Yeah, Bob McGreevy is going to come in and um, talk about the Griffin and why LaSalle build it, built her. And was it only for the fur trade or was it their more reaching purpose? And did it have anything to do with its disappearance? So there's there's a lot of unanswered questions with, with the wreck we would all love to find. And he's going to give us a little... Um, presentation on on hopefully answer some of these questions that people have you know i'm not sure how familiar our listeners are with bob mcgreevy but uh, i encourage you to google him and look him up uh he's an artist he has uh taken the time to uh look at these boats in a little differently you know he he actually goes through the old articles on them and, and, and gets finds out what the colors were originally you know we see them in the old newspaper articles and think of them just being this black and white photograph but no these were grand machines i mean uh, particularly when we got into steam and they started painting them up real pretty i mean these these were painted ladies and these guys were real proud of these ships and he has all these paintings he's done with them in very lifelike scenes and you see just what a <laughs> magnificent uh vehicle vehicles these were and to see you know them you know in action i mean his canvas has come to life and you know when he does his research on these he comes up with a lot of the stories behind the boats and uh i'm not sure you know exactly how he's done this on with the griffin i'm sure he's got a very creative way because he's he's been a uh, a regular presenter at ford seahorses for a long long time and i, I wouldn't miss his program for anything yeah he what, what always amazes me is the um sketches and paintings he does of the wrecks on the bottom the uh, pencil drawings from so he has divers that give him pictures of the wrecks and the layout in the detail in his his artwork is just unreal yeah i see like with uh, cal cothrode he's an artist as well and i, I think he's you know kind of somewhat picking up because you know bob grieve not going to be with us forever and uh you know cal cothrode is going down that road as well and his his scenes are more of the wrecks on the bottom but he's done quite a bit of stuff i mean on a lot of stuff he's a great photographer and uh i encourage our listeners to uh google him as well he's uh, based out of milwaukee uh he's a technical diver uh he's been doing this for a little while um he's you know and he's a, he's a nice guy too i mean i chit chat him quite a bit he's a good guy to talk with yep and so if you want to see any of these shows or the show is on February 29th. It's a Saturday. We start doors open about 8:30 in the morning. Usually runs till about five. We have actually two rooms of speakers going on throughout the day. Um, it, it really is a great program. You can get tickets at the Great Lake Shipwreck Festival dot org forward slash tickets in advance. They're twenty five dollars. If you wait and pay at the door, they're thirty. And a full day's entertainment for $25 is hard to come by anymore. 
Yeah, it's definitely money well spent. I mean, I, ever since I've been certified, I haven't missed a show. And uh, I, you know, you know, make make a make a day of it. I mean, and, and bring your friends too. I mean, carpool, road trip. Yeah, bring your non-diving friends because this isn't just a dive show. It's a show about Great Lakes history and shipwreck history. There's more to it than just diving. So do you have some sponsors for the show, some people who have helped out with uh, helping get the show organized? Uh, yes, we have. Actually, we've had um, a few different. We've obviously the uh, Michigan Underwater Preserves, Isle Royal Charters, uh, Black Dog Charters, Fully Tech out of Canada, uh, Divers Inc. in Ann Arbor. We have a lot of different uh, sponsors from all over the Great Lakes. In the past, we've had dive shops from up towards Mackinac and and all over. Yeah, I've I've also noticed on uh, a number of your uh, promotional uh, literature out there, it does say the uh, Dawson Center is a sponsor as well for you guys. So uh, it's a good, good shop to hit as well. So. Yeah, the Dawson's Museum is a is a, a wonderful museum there on Belle Isle. Yeah, if you ever get a chance in the area, uh, Dawson Center on Belle Isle, they actually have an anchor from the Edmund Fitzgerald, and it wasn't taken off the shipwreck. This is an anchor which was uh, lost in the river, and uh, actually, uh, Nick, Nick, you were telling me a little bit about that anchor there. I think that you know a little bit more about it than I do. Um, I don't know a whole lot. I do know there was a few of our club members that were involved with recovering the anchor and they brought it back up and refinished it. And it's now on display outside of Dawson's museum from the Edmund Fitzgerald. No. One of I, one of, I think three artifacts that are on display. You have the lifeboat up, I think in the Sioux, there's a life raft in Toledo at the national museum of the great lakes. And then the anchor there. Yeah. Now, that anchor, if I remember the plaque correctly, it weighs like 20,000 pounds. I mean, what kind of lift bags do you use for something like that? Very large ones in quite Very a few of them. <laughs> I'll bet. I'll bet. I, I, I want to say they used a crane to uh, to lift that. It was, a, it was definitely a um, – they had found it, knew where it was, marked it, did a lot of planning to recover it and made sure that it had a home uh, once they recovered it and to restore it. And Yeah. I gather they went through some reports where the uh, Fitzgerald, they actually were anchored in the river and uh, for some reason it got fouled and they were not able to bring it up on the winch and the, the chain parted and uh, there it sat. So, uh, you know, I guess it was, several years before it sank that it actually lost that anchor. So like I say, it was not actually part of the shipwreck, but, uh, you know, yeah, it was, it was lost several years before. And I think they knew it was there. And then obviously after the loss of the Fitzgerald, then, um, they, you know, looking through records, knew it was there and decided maybe, maybe we should go try to find it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and something else that's kind of cool in the Dawson Center is uh, there are a number of old cannon in there, which they have recovered from the Detroit River. And most of these cannon have been uh, – they were made inoperative before they were dumped. 
I know that the uh, there were different times when Fort Detroit uh, traded hands between the American versus the British, and I think even the French even had it at one point. And it seemed like every time it traded hands, they the owners of the fort did not want the cannons to go to the next owners of the fort, so they'd haul them out on the ice and dump them. <laughs> and they there were several times when large numbers of cannon were hauled out on the ice and dumped out there, which um, divers from the police department, I don't know, were there, were there divers from the Fort Seahorses involved in bringing up any of those cannons up there? I am not sure about the cannons. I, I've i always heard of the cannons. I've never seen them um, or really gotten a good location on them. Most of the diving in the Detroit River is off-limits. Um, there is one opportunity when the hydroplane races come in in August, they hire or not hire, but uh, look for volunteers for local divers to take part and be rescue divers. And I've had the opportunity to do that. And part of our, part of our training, if you will, is an acclimation dive in the river um, where we get to do a drift dive between Belle Isle and in Detroit. And that is always a lot of fun. A lot of, uh, a lot of nice bottles to see in that section. Yeah, I'll bet a lot of those bottles are uh, prohibition era bottles, as I recall. That was a real popular area to uh, smuggle across the border because, of course, Canada did not have prohibition during the time that when, when the United States did. And so they were bringing all kinds of hooch and other stuff across the river there and across Lake St. Clair, too. So it makes you wonder what's inside those bottles down there. Yeah, yeah, I've I've seen bottles from uh, like the Clink Brewing, and that they've dated back to 1890s. So there's there's a lot of history just there on the bottom of the bottom of the river. But it, you know, and and I got a new appreciation for the recovery of that ankle anchor a couple of years ago. Um, one of the one of the hydroplanes, the prop shaft snapped, and the prop come out of the out of the boat and they asked us to go recover it after the races on Saturday night and see if we could get it back for the crew. Cause those props are 10, $15,000 stainless, all billet chunk CNC'd out. And of course Ouch. they, yeah, of course they knew right where it was at. And, oh, uh, everybody does. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, well, that prop's still somewhere. We, we haven't found it, uh, as best as we could do for our search. In the uh, exact location, it, you, you drop right down on top of it, of course. It was miraculously not there. Well, but how many RPM were on that prop when it came off? And, you know, how far did it travel? Did it continue through the water after it came off? And, uh, of course, when you're running across the river at 90 miles an hour, you're not going to have an exact location where it came off, you know? Well, so. and they're traveling more closer to, like, 190 miles an hour. Wow. Okay. Uh, yeah, the the unlimited hydroplanes are they are a sight to see. Jet powered, jet powered boats. So Fast is so is there like a standing reward on that propeller out there? I believe it's a case of beer or two, something something like that. It better, it better uh, be some or, good beer. Or a good day listing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There we go. <laughs> What's that? But, eBay listing goes to the highest bidder. Yeah, yeah we've, we <laughs> found your prop. It is eBay item number. <laughs> hey, but it's hey, but it's got free shipping on it, you know. So because because yeah. you know a guy that works at the post office, you know. So there you go. Right, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, cool, cool. 
Well, well, Nick, uh, thank you much for the insight on the show here. Um, you know, I want to encourage all of our listeners that uh, even you, Derek, I know you're down there in Australia, but catch a flight, man. Good, good excuse to get away from the fires, man. Come on yeah, up here. There, there may be a nonstop from Sydney to uh, to Detroit. Yeah, yeah. Love to but, have uh, you. Yeah, if, if you come up, I got a ticket for you. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, yeah well, you come up, we'll cover your ticket. That, that's no wait, 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 wait. That's a ticket to the show, not a plane ticket. Okay, let's make it clear here, guys. All right, <laughs> clarify. <laughs> yeah, all right, <laughs> all right. Well, thank you very much, Nick. Uh, and uh, one one final question of what got you into scuba diving. So growing up, my dad was actually a diver. So as a kid, I would go to White Star Quarry, and he would go diving. And so I was stuck on the shore, and I'd fill my I'd fill my time with uh, remote control boats, and he would have to go recover them because <laughs> they always sank. So he, he was always on salvage duty. So uh, the best though is I actually used to. Uh, um, do a lot of fishing, you know, for the sunfish there. And so the one time he was having some trouble equalizing and he said, Hey, can you run up to the car and grab me some Sudafed? And so I did. I said, well, here, hold my, hold my fishing pole. You know, I don't want to reel it in. And so I run up and didn't really think anything of it. As I went up, the DNR officer went down and I, <laughs> I come back and there's the DNR officer looking at my dad saying, uh, isn't that kind of like an unfair advantage to be fishing in scuba gear? So, <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know. Sounds like a plan to me, man. I'll keep I, I give warm. It a shot. Yeah. Yeah. So at least he wasn't was, spearing them. So. <laughs> right. So I, that's what, that's really what got me into diving. And then uh, learning about all the different history. I've always been a, a history person and then stumbling upon, all the shipwreck history that we have here in the Great Lakes. And that's, that's really what kept me hooked. Well, my friend, you are in a good place for that. As we, you know, we have the greatest diveable wrecks in the world right here. So glad you decided to get wet with, wet with the rest of us here. Yeah. Appreciate it. Thank you guys for having us on. Thank Anytime. You. And, and, and you're more than welcome to stay through the show if you want, or jump off whenever you need to. Because we are going to get into the news part of the program. I'd like to thank everybody who's in the chat room. We have Derek and Eric, and uh, we have a night diver. Welcome to this chat room who has joined us. Let's see. What is the first one that we have up on the docket? Uh, it's got Cozumel here. I'm about to post it into the chat room here momentarily. Okay. And there and, it goes. And this one was from Undercurrent. Uh, one of those publications we recommend that you take a peek at. And as Mac had pointed out, they love everybody sharing stories with other divers because it gets them more subscribers. Uh, and this article talks about the scoop on the Cozumel reef closure. It says, dear fellow diver, when we heard about Cozumel reef closure, one of the undercurrent writers hurried down to get the full scoop. But just before we were ready to go to the press for the article, the closure ended. However, he wrote an important piece detailing the closure, its politics, impacts, and divers. We want you to have a chance to read it. So they go and they actually, uh, you know, even though it was outdated, potentially outdated information, uh, they they did some research. Uh, and uh, 
Mac, do you want to kind of give us an overview of this one? If you're still there. Mac, you there? I'm not got hearing muted. him. No, he's not muted. He's he's okay. Not seeing. Yep. Uh, let's see. So uh, the kind of the backstory is that the the reefs were closed suddenly because they were trying to determine what the damage. It says uh, the reefs were supposed to be closed from October seventh to an undecided date in the future, but the key word there was undecided. After protests from local dive operators, the Marine Park allegedly decided to reopen the indirect reefs on January 15th, 2020, but that didn't satisfy the operators. So now the rumors the reefs will reopen December 15th, and that was of 2019. But they hadn't seen anything on the internet to confirm it. The answer was nobody knows. The, uh, it, the SLTLD affects the corals which are easily recognized the worst, like various brain corals and other pillow corals, worth early onset, the species first affected by the outbreak, rapid progression, a total mortality ranging from one week for smaller colonies to complete mortality over one to two months for larger colonies. Studies conducted elsewhere suggested disease is caused by a bacterial or viral pathogen transmitted by direct contact or through a water column. The term direct contact implies that divers who have touched infected corals physically spread SLTLD by touching healthy corals. But if it's spread in the water column, then suppose cruise ships that have passed through the Florida or other Caribbean ports are the disease vector. Any outbreak of rapidly spread disease is necessary to comply, uh, uh, to completely quarantine the affected area. That would mean additional closure of reefs to divers. It would also make since the ban cruise ships from affected areas. Uh, first outbreak occurred in Florida 2014, rapidly spread through Jamaica, Mexican Caribbean, St. Martin, Martin uh, Maritime, uh, USVI, Dominican Republic, scientists in the National Marine Sanctuary in Florida began applying antibacterial agents, amoxicillin, and then some other cillins that I can't pronounce with variant success rates. So the idea in Cozumel is to shut down the Southern Reef for all activity and give local scientists a chance to apply the same treatments and see if the disease can be stopped. If the treatments work, the new corals can be grown to replace the dead ones. Clearly, there's no way to shut down two months is going to work. There's no way local businesses are going to support the shutdown or indeterminate length. So what does it mean for traveling divers? Operators are trying to betray an attitude of business as usual. There haven't been a lot of cancellations, but they were told there hasn't been a lot of new reservations either. Jeremy used to pick up at 9 a.m., but his boat, the Jewfish, arrived at 8, hoping to beat most of the other boats to the available dive sites. A recently broken ankle of sidelined Jeremy, and he dove with us one day during the week. He has two guides, Linda and Pepe, who switch off three days on, three days off. I'd already seen a few boats pass at 7.30. We arrived in, in Del El and we had it to all ourselves. So the article goes into uh, a little bit more detail, but as we can see, it's opened up now. So, you know, the, the challenge that it appears that Mexico and Cozumel are having was trying to determine how do you address uh, the spread of this problem uh, and have enough of the political fortitude to survive the local businesses and operators who 
uh, don't want you to shut it down. Because if if those reefs all go away, uh, you're going to kind of lose the divers anyway. Yeah, but if you don't shut it down to study the problem, you're not going to get ahead of it. Yeah. Uh, feedback from an uh, individual who lives down there talked about, uh, and I'll let's quote his, his comments, I'm friends with the operators and locals as well. Some of this deal and the length that lasted was purely political and a bid for endangered species money immediately available if they declared an emergency. When they didn't get it, suddenly they decided to open it again under pressures from the operators. Non-licensed operators are a big problem. They operate illegal as an illegal pirate, basically. Mm-hmm. And I've seen the fish, especially grouper, and other different populations declining, especially when the second big cruise port went in. Uh, the other aspect they talked about is they're not outlawing sunscreen sales, uh, either in the shore and or the dive boats, and that is creating a biological aspect that many other places are now um, de- demanding that they don't have that one type of uh, sunscreen that affects the environment. Mm-hmm. But they, they do say the cruise ships population increase has to be the biggest culprits hands down from the event they're having. So, so they're saying it's more just a, a combination of environmental and local concerns that have led to this point, not necessarily uh, something that needed immediate action from uh, a recently occurring event. That's what it sounds like. I'll... Okay, and then the next one we have is... Oh, and I, and I see we skipped one because there's one we didn't have a link to, but the uh, kind of a body of an article, and this one was also from uh, Undercurrent Mac. Remember we had talked about the full-face snorkel mass? Yes. Um says the most successful full-face snorkel mass evolved from those used successful by Italian firefighters, Ocean Reef. They provided popular to the public because they pitched it to people who didn't like getting their faces wet. Soon lots of manufacturers elsewhere jumped in the full faces bandwagon. Then people started dying when using them, which led to them getting officially banned in Hawaii. So head, mares, the company that sells the Ocean Reef area full-face snorkeling mask under a different name, as do some other Italian scuba gear brands, decide to do some research. Trapped carbon dioxide, the gas while exhaled in this side production of metabolism, appears to be the culprit in a snorkeling mass death, says Mayers. It's the gas that gives the incentive to exhale, and more than a tiny percentage of the air we inhale leads to breathlessness, distress, and finally death. So what's going wrong? Head Mayers tested a range of these masks available worldwide along their own product, what they discovered was alarming. Some of these masks provoked CO2 poisoning within minutes of use. It's because they don't sufficiently event exhaled air loaded with CO2 from the air to be inhaled. This causes a buildup of poisonous CO2 within the mask. Added to that, some users might not be physically fit and take shallow breaths, which encourages an internal buildup of CO2 within the user's own lungs. Together, the combination can be fatal. If you want to use a full face mask, buy one that's well-fitting internal bib. Use it properly. You should always breathe deeply, being sure to empty your lungs as much as possible between breaths. You should know how to rip the mask off easily should you encounter any discomfort or breathlessness. And this is uh, written by John 
baton of uh, from undercurrent. Yeah, yeah. I know some of us have tried those out, and you know, I certainly can't endorse a product. They're they're kind of fun to use, but apparently, uh, there have been some real sad stories out of them there. Yeah, and that sounds like something that just needs a little bit of you know, it needed a little bit of additional research before making it into a product. Well, I've got a couple of those that we uh, used during our Mary mm-hmm. Freebed dives, if you remember. And uh, I've used them extensively in swimming. And I've not had any issues on the make and model that we have been provided and we have been using. But it's really good to know the symptoms and the correct way to use it, not the shallow water, shallow water right. breathing technique. To do the deep breaths and yep. did they did they say in this article they didn't really make it clear as to what type of design could you look at a mask and tell if it was the correct design or not? Uh, was there some way of separating the air that you're exhaling that has a has the carbon dioxide to get that out first is it a a way they channel the air or other parts of the system it it really wasn't clear from the article and then uh mac i you've you've driven in your car with dive gear on haven't you well not the tanks maybe maybe my dry suit okay well it looks like these guys uh had the uh the regulators in their mouth because their car was flooded. Uh it says you two prankster who drove a car filled with water to the liquor store, bought beer during a heat wave, appeared in Australian court to face charges related to the scuba driving stunt. Michael Alexander uh Filippo, if I'm saying that right, I doubt I am. Twenty eight who operates a Raka Raka YouTube channel with his ten, twin brother Danny appeared in front of uh, court Wednesday over several diving offenses. He posted a viral video in January 2019 showing him driving a modified Ford Laser with friend Jackson uh, Adorty. The two were seen wearing goggles and stupid diving regulators while driving the sedan during a heat wave. Our car doesn't have air conditioning, so we designed the car to drive full of water, one brother said in the video, which has garnered over a million views. The suspension from the leak, leaky sedan can clearly be uh, seen with the weight of the water as it drove to the liquor drive-in store. He bought two bottles of beer and drank them underwater. <laughs> he posted a follow-up video in, Ven- in no- December showing the police arresting him over the stunt. Uh, he was charged with several driving offenses, including driving in a reckless and dangerous manner, driving an unregistered vehicle, and failing to wear a seatbelt. <laughs> On Wednesday, the entourage supporters uh, surrounded outside the court where he told reporters he wasn't worried. I'm confident, as always. I've been ready for this. We've been training hard for this. It'll be quick. The magistrate uh, outlined bail conditions to allow him to travel interstate before he's set to appear in court in February. He and his brother have uh, achieved a cult following with their videos and have been named influential cultural figures in the media. 
I'd like to hear the results of the uh, what the fine's going to be. And I was looking at the picture, and I am assuming there's a sunroof is how he got in and out of that. Because if you I open would, the door, you're going to lose your prime. I would guess so. <laughs> I, I'm just thinking, my you know, you have to. I'm surprised the car didn't completely collapse, but I guess if it's uh, probably didn't have a much of a market value after that. That's got to be a lot of weight. That's a, it's, it's literally a ton, if not more. Well, I know it's been averaging about 106 degrees there during the daytime in Australia, so I can see why you might want to stay cool when it's driving around. Yeah. Well, you know, a little radiator. But but then if it's if the water gets hot, it's, in, it's like you're in a hot tub. Yeah, it just uh, changed I, water, though. Yeah. He, I'm pretty sure he didn't have a, a dry suit or wetsuit on. Looking at the picture, he didn't. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm sure he wasn't too worried about the resale value at that point. <laughs> so it was beyond that. So. Yeah. Well, he, he, he got what he wanted, which was the followers. And, you know, as they say, there's no such thing as bad publicity. So, And then, Mac, hey. you had a – go ahead. Hey, um – Derek just uh, shared something with me here in the chat room that I'd like to give a shout out for. And uh, Derek, he's, he's, he's currently looking for an art for the article on it here, but uh, apparently Undercurrent is doing a fundraiser for the uh, bushfire animals in down in uh, Australia. Derek's from Australia, and he's been telling mm-hmm. us a bit about all the, you know, the animals are having a real hard time down there. The people are as well. But uh, I just want to give a shout out. Thank you, Undercurrent, doing the right thing here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's just a, a tragedy. It's uh, you know, when you have the amount of devastation that's that's happening, and it's it's gonna we're it's not done happening. You know, that's just the beginning stages. It takes a long time for that stuff to heal and and come back, and uh, just the the complete size of it. Uh, it's going to be questionable to see how much it can come back. Uh, he's, Derek's saying he got as a as an email from Undercurrent. Um, so if we find that, we'll put it in a link in the show notes and, and get that out. Well, it looks like he just posted a link for it there right now. Oh, did he? Yep. And he just came up with it here. So, um, well, let yeah. me see. <laughs> we, we, we can't read that on the, on the podcast that we'd be here for 20 minutes. Uh, yeah. It's, it, so yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll do something in the show notes so that we can get well, a link to it if you're interested. But- but undercurrent undercurrent dot org if you want to donate, I'm sure you can find a link on their website if you if you wish to donate. But this is the uh, January 16, twenty twenty article, which is uh, today. Today when we're recording anyway. But uh, if you wish to donate, look them up. It's a good cause. Yeah. Well, solar power is getting to be popular, and it seems like the marine uh, animals have been ahead of the curve. Solar-powered sea slugs, the rare organisms with plant-like qualities. Uh, bright green, what is that, Cecloglossa, found in the Atlantic coast of North America, has earned the title of the solar-powered sea slug for its ability to produce its own energy with sunlight and the chloroplast that sucks off of algae. This unusual process, which is similar to photosynthesis, is known as kleptoplasty, except for the number of creatures that the adorable leaf sheep 
uh, neuter branch. And that was a big Latin name before that. You can look it up if you'd like. Very few non-plant organisms are capable of phenomenon. What makes uh, it even more amazing is the fact that the small organism has been known to incorporate the genes of its food into its own DNA, giving the frond-like sea slugs even closer connection to plant life. As they mature and start feeding on the chloroplast and algae, their reddish and gray coloring becomes emerald green from the chlorophyll in their food, blending to the verdant seabed beneath them like leaves. These slugs can live for several months to a year off the energy they manufacture from photosynthesis. And they've got a lot of nice photos in this article. Yeah, that's quite an informative article there. I'm liking that. And then the next one we have is uh, from the same title, mymodernmet.com. Invisible details of tiny creatures uncovered with laser microscope photos. And uh, these, these are always interesting just to kind of browse through. We won't read the article, but we're going to ooh and on the photos, which makes for really good radio. Uh, and they show a, a barnacle. Uh, what I'm kind of curious is, is this coloring, did they add that? Or is that just, is that interpretation of additional data that they're showing as colors? Certainly vibrant and interesting. So they have uh, barnacle, uh, a midge pupa, uh, moth anemone, a couple of those, uh, paraphallus, and uh, let's see, uh, whirligig beetle. So some interesting photos. And then if, if those are a little too cute for you, the Russian fisherman has been posting terrifying creatures of deep on his Twitter post and people want him to stop. Russian fisherman, Roman. I, I, Mac, I think you put this on because you tried to get me to pronounce some more names. I can't possibly do. Would uh, Mac do that? Yeah, Mac, Mac would do that. Yeah, Twitter account is flooded with photos of the most bizarre deep sea creatures. The man behind the camera works on a fishing trawler, the Murmansk. Uh, extreme northwest of Russia uses his phone to document the scary creatures he's pulled from fishing nets. Some argue the strange fish look like something from horror movies. However, he shows no signs of fear when handling these weird sea animals and even adds some sense of humor to his tweets. The pictures involve some controversy and backlash with arguments such as deep sea creatures should be left alone. Many of the deep sea fish die because of the change in pressure when brought to the surface. And this raises the question as to whether they should be killed just for the sake of the sensational tweet. He didn't bring them up to tweet, I don't think. I think they got caught in, as bycatch in a net. Uh, after seeing such scary fish for the first time, people are afraid humans would destroy the delicate ecosystem of the mysterious ocean floor uh, beings. So there's a set of teeth on that first one. And then it looks like an angler fish, which uh, kind of a navy blue and iridescent blue. I'm not seeing a link for that one in the show notes. I'm trying to share it, but I'm not seeing a. I'm overlooking right, it paste, here. I'll paste that one in. I got one with like buck teeth. Some of these I hadn't seen before. 
And he's just getting these from Nets. Ooh. We, we could have done without that paste. Thanks, really, man. <laughs> yeah, you, you may have wanted to avoid that one. Ooh. I, I I don't think too many of these are going to be starring in the next Finding Nemo. Put a couple of the pictures on the site here so people could get an eyeball while we're doing this. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like once you've seen it, you're not going to see it. Yeah. Be, hey, be thankful when you are uh, stream when you're streaming our podcast that you're not actually visually streaming our podcast. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And- and I he, keep he looking for Sigourney Weaver. Yeah. <laughs> Coming out of her out of her stomach here, yeah. <laughs> wow. Some of these are pretty freaking frightening. Yeah. Well, you think about it, if you're gonna do a monster movie, alien monster movie, you could just use these as inspiration. You you wouldn't have to invent anything. You could just use these. Or maybe the next Star Wars, you know, they do the next trilogy, they could uh Use these as uh, some alien creatures, and then yeah. we've got treasure from a 16th century Venetian shipwreck that has been hidden away for centuries. Now curators planning to make them public. The wreck of the believable could be a good working title for the show. Kloss and Peterson says, referring to Damien Hiss, fictional underwater archaeological extravaganza in Venice. Treasure from the Wreck of the Unbelievable, a very rare uh, Gagina set sail from an Italy city packed with goods made from Europe, finest craftsmen and women, a trove of recovered artifacts made in the cities, including Venice, uh, Vienna, Berlin, Nuremberg, Lubbock, including chandeliers, thousands of wine glasses, beads, leather frame spectacles, and mar- miraculously preserved 170 foot length of embroidered silk along with hundreds of cannons and cannonballs it was a bulk order destined for the ottoman sultan murad iii who was building a palatial new home for his harem the gajina may have been compared to the container ship today clausen peterson explains but the vessel never reached its destination Istanbul. Instead, it stank mysteriously circumstances in the Adriatic Sea off the coast of modern-day Croatia. The legend is the captain sunk it and ran off with the diamonds. The curator says the high-value cargo was insured, and much of the paperwork survives in the archives in Venice. One set of diamonds is registered, another was apparently on board but not registered. That is part of the narrative, he says. she says. The sunken ship lay undisturbed until the discovery by divers in the late 1960s, Part of its contents, which are astonishingly well-preserved, have been recovered by underwater archaeologists, but much of it remains on the seabed. Clausen Pedersen describes the trove of rare time capsules of Renaissance Europe's luxury goods. Only a fraction of the items retrieved have been shown in the public, and then only in Croatia. Now the Croatian government is keen to turn the wreck into a spectacle museum exhibit, which is where Clausen Pedersen comes in. Clausen Pedersen, who has been previously curator of Copenhagen's prestigious art and gallery, art and archaeology museum, the Nye Klersberg Griptotech, 
is working with such a large team in Croatia, which is led by underwater archaeologist Irene Radic Rossi. The ongoing research in the wreck will be formed a key part of the exhibition. The Danish curator has held early talks with major museums in the U.S., Europe, Asia, and also approached possible sponsors. My hope is that attract the shipping industry to get involved in development of the exhibition. They have so much money, and they usually do not directly support art or culture. I figured a new target group, she says. The shipwreck such as obviously relates the legacy of the trade and shipping, large and growing industry even today, and potential for collaboration is great. She hopes the sponsor will find some extravagant technology that allow visitors to the exhibit to control the underwater exploration of the shipwreck, because why not, she says. Her dream venue is a museum with a collection of decorative art in the same era so that the connections can be drawn between the exhibition, the objects, and the permanent galleries. The Croatians are opening to having the exhibit at more than two or three venues, she said. So it sounds really what she's doing is he's fishing for funding, that they don't have anything. So uh, their pitching is a possibility. So Croatia has these artifacts. They just need them to be organized, presented, and touring. I, I like that uh, box of the leather frame spectacle. That's an interesting look. Yeah, I'm surprised the stuff's in such good shape. Usually uh, salt water doesn't do so well, but this is pretty good stuff here. How'd you like the cannons? <laughs> I didn't see the cannons. Where are they? I put the picture on the uh, club site for you. Okay. Haven't seen them yet. Are they all in, encased in rock yet, or are they... Did you see the pictures I posted or not? Are they on the website, you said, or Facebook? Oh, well, or? right here on the pod thing. Oh, okay, podcast. Yeah, let me take a look. Uh, I have to pop, uh, pop in general to see them. Uh, dun, dun, dun. Well, I'm, I'm looking at the other fish. <laughs> Again? Again. Oh, cannon. Yeah, there you go. There's some cannon. I always love me some cannon. <laughs> and then what's that right above that? Is those like, uh, it looks like scissors. Is that like a, a cigar cutter? They had um, a, a whole bunch of different items. You think you walked into a glass shop for number one, excuse me, and a lot of wooden artifacts also. Yeah. Well, they said they had like a lot of like glass pieces. So I don't know, were they selling those with somebody of, like polished them and turn them into jewelry, or would they have been melted together to to form a sheet of glass? I'm not quite sure. Well, this is a sample of the type of glass they found. Mm-hmm. Did you see it? Yeah, I I saw the samples. I just wasn't quite sure what they would what they would do with them. Well, when you went to the museum, they went through, and they've got probably. 30 different styles of glass and like goblets and items like this faces that they show. And this is obviously the bottom part of the stanchion for some of them. The second part was some of the wood objects that they had recovered. And considering how old it is, they're in darn good shape. Yeah. Yeah, because those cannons, they had nine of those bronze cannons were found. Excuse me. Two of them dated to 1582. And these were all in the same spot, or is it just in the collection? In that in that 
in the shipwreck itself. Wow. They said there were sheets of brass, coils of brass wire, bars of tin, cine bars, I don't know what that is, and something colored purple that was ex- very, very expensive. They said they found part of the cargo included thimbles, sewing needles, razors, glass scissors, which, oh, glass slash scissors, weather belts, precision scales. So it almost looks like a hardware store ship sank. Yeah. Well, they said it was loaded up, so. Well, those cannon are unusual because you normally do not see them that way. No. That was interesting right there. There's a good one. Let's see. I think I, I think we've got one more, don't we? We have. Yes. When you're lost. Yep. When you are lost. So this could be in the potentially cool scuba gear. This is another one from Undercurrent. Um, Garmin revealed the Garmin Inreach Mini, a device for ensuring that you get picked up even when you surface far from your dive boat. Initially aimed at yachtsmen and as such waterproof for close to surface use and underwater housing for divers is rated for 330 feet or would that be 110 meters thereabouts uh, communicating via its base in Texas using the Iridium satellite network allows lost divers to confirm they are safely at the surface to reveal their GPS location. And even to have two-way text conversation with first responders using pre-written stored messages that are selected as appropriate. Most importantly, the unit is so compact, half the height of a soda can and the frontal area around the size of a credit card. It is no imposition to carry. It's expected to sell around $300. And uh, you can find more information about it on the Garmin website, Garmin.com. With the number of people we found who get lost or get carried away by currents, if I were anywhere that I couldn't get to shore real quick, I'd be carrying that little sucker. Well, how many stories have we had on the podcast over the years? And that's only a fraction of the ones we've seen. I try to limit the negative that we cover in the show. And, you know, you're going to some country with maybe not quite the infrastructure that we're accustomed to or the, or the, uh, some of the, the cultural practices. So if nothing else, you can convince somebody <laughs> via this device that uh, you need to be picked up. Yeah. And the fact that it's, that this is basically uh, a personal locator beacon here with, with the GPS uplink on it there. It looks like it going to the Iridium network. So this is going to be a satellite phone connection that's going to be picked up anywhere in the world. So yeah. you don't need to worry about having cell phone connection or, uh, you know, actually even your dive boat hearing you, uh, you know, <clears throat> this is something which is, you know, you can send an SOS, you know, anywhere in the world from this. Yeah. So you, you, and, and you can get it to some, I'm sure there's some sort of settings where you set who's going to be notified should the event happen. So you're not relying on the local infrastructure to. Well, this this says the Garmin InReach Mini. I know the regular Garmin InReach, you can text to anyone you wish. I'm not quite sure on the Mini. Uh, You know, it may have yeah, it may have some presets to go to to you know you want to send it to your significant other, your lawyer, you know, wherever you want to send it to. So, yeah. 
Yep, I'm I'm looking on their website and they they've got the uh, InReach Mini and then there's the InReach Mini dive case. So that's what I think what they're referring to is that the InReach Mini with the dive case and it is fairly small. What it, when looking at it, what it reminds me of is the walkie talkies that were popular about 10, 15 years ago. Uh, you know, and, and licensed bands. But they're just, you know, it's about hand size. Um, and right now, looking at their website, they're selling it for $349. I'm sure you can find it in other places, your local retailers. Uh, well, but what gets my attention on it is the depth rating on it, so you can take it with you when you're diving. You know, I, I do have a uh, DeLorme inReach Garmin purchased. Actually, DeLorme, I believe, believe started this technology as far as having the handheld textures and then Garmin purchased DeLorme so that they're now a part of the parent company and I have the older version from DeLorme which is grandfathered in and still functions mm-hmm. yeah it says it measures just under two inches tall by two inches wide and it weighs three and a half ounces connects via 100% global radium network you don't have to worry about being within range of a cell tower it says, who will answer your SOS? Geos will. Geos is the world leader in emergency response solutions and monitoring. They've supported rescues in more than 140 countries, saving many lives in the process. They're standing by 24-7 to respond to your SOS. Track your device and notify the proper contacts and emergency responders in the area. Once you've triggered its stress signal, you expect a delivery confirmation that help is on the way and continue to update the status of your response team. And one of the convenient features of these items is that, you know, that although they are hooked into the satellite phone network, you are not uh, obligated to a satellite phone style contract. Now, anyone who's looked at satellite phones, uh, you know, they're a wonderful tool, but those uh, contracts uh, that you're looking at taking another bill, you know, larger than your regular cell phone bill to get around 10 minutes. These plans, uh, I think your basic plan is for 10 texts a month and it runs you like $11 a month. Uh, when I've used the uh, DeLorme in reach, which is this same product because Garmin bought DeLorme, the, uh, I step it up to the next plan. It's $35 a month for like 40 texts a month. And yeah, they are a, a great tool. I've used it. I haven't needed to use it, but I've used it to get uh, actually Mac when I was going up to uh, Standard Rock, 35 miles offshore Lake Superior. I was having Mac uh, watch the weather because him being a pilot, he has resources he's familiar with that most people aren't. And he could tell me, hey, there's a front coming your way. Get out of there. But it never came to that. But it's just nice to know. Yeah. I'm looking at the at the subscription. So they have uh, different annual plans from uh, $12 a month all the way up to $65 a month. Uh and uh, that $65 a month gets you pretty much unlimited uh, with two-minute tracking intervals. Yeah, and the two-minute tracking intervals, if you have a um, – anyone who gets access to your account, because you, you, you'll set up an account with this, and it'll do like, uh, you know, uh, uh, dots, like breadcrumbs, to tell where, where you are in a particular time every two minutes. 
And then when you send a text with one of these units, the uh, GPS is embedded in it. I don't think the GPS is embedded at the cheapest plan, but you go up to the next plan and they, they, they embed the GPS in the text because I've you know been sending those back and forth to Miami at times when I was out in the wilderness. Yeah, it just gives uh, you know loved ones a little bit of comfort to they can see that you're, you're still alive and kicking. Or well, at least you, it's floating in the surface. And you also have the advantage of with the satellite texture, because, you know, uh, a lot of us will have personal locator beacons or EPIRBs, and that's an all or nothing. You know, you push the button, and, yeah, they're going to send a helicopter for you, and you're also going to get a bill for ten grand too. Uh, this thing here, you can say, hey, uh, I'm in trouble. Can you have the boat meet me someplace else or something? Or, you know, you can have them call off the cavalry, because I, <laughs> I know some folks that were uh, offshore in their boat, who did not show up at the right time and had someone getting the Coast Guard ready to go find them because they were a little bit late. And uh, that they were doing the right thing based upon their plan. But if they'd been able to message back and forth and say, hey, we're just delayed, it wouldn't have been an issue. But uh, it's nice to be able to send a message, which is less than 911. Yeah. So I... I you know, if you're you're in a remote location or going to a country where you plan on being in a not as accessible location, this would certainly be worth it. Yeah. Okay. Well, that does it for scuba in the news. Anybody get any diving in this last week? Other than the shower and the tub, nope. <laughs> no, we've just been working on equipment around here. Unfortunately, we revamp the basement to get our diving gear better accompanied, but that doesn't count as a dive, unfortunately. No, no, we can't log that. Uh, I I did get a lot of rain. I could have probably tried to sneak into a mud puddle in the front yard, but uh, <laughs> I am coming to the I'm I'm coming to the end of oh. my house remodel product project. So I'm probably down to less than a half a day of uh, flooring that I've got to do. I'm, I'm in the final trimming pieces. No more full uncut pieces left. Just those little slivers, but I was able to stretch the flooring out. So uh, countertops are in, cabinets are painted. Uh, I've got trim to do. Trim, trim might be a while, you know. Uh, my rule on trim is you got to get it done within 10 years of finishing the, the wall painting. So I think I'll make that. Uh, Mac, you, you got a dive safety story for us? Actually, can we digress just one moment? Sure. I'm getting uh, Derek is Derek in the chat room is talking about his dives. I guess he oh, cool. uh, well, looks we'll, like he... we'll let him count those in. Uh, the Southern Hemisphere—they've uh, got a little bit better. Yeah, so sort of, Yeah, Derek is showing us some shark's teeth he picked up down there. Now, Ooh. Derek is uh, one of our listeners from. Uh, Sydney, Australia, and uh, yep, he's got something to brag about. This is cool stuff here. He's on a nice uh, shallow shore dive, fossil shark oh. tooth, my first finds, and that's from Derek out of Australia. So, very nice, cool stuff. I'm jealous. I, I love shark tooth hunting, and it's one of those things. Uh, if I wasn't doing it, I wouldn't care a bit about it. So it's it's hard to tell your non diving friends how cool it is because it's kind of eh. but it's sure fun to to go down and get them 
Yeah, Derek's telling us he was like a kid at Christmas. <laughs> Those are that's a pretty healthy tooth too, by the way. Actually, yeah, that sound... one's respectable. It's a couple of inches. It's yeah, got to like be it's... approaching the the largest that I've had the opportunity to get, and his, I think his is in better shape than what I normally get. I usually have a corner broken off. Mm-hmm. And Karen Mann is looking for anyone wants to go looking for megalodon teeth in November. Let her know. So it sounds like she's going. That gonna be with with Sass doing that, Karen. Uh, she's ignoring me. <laughs> she's typing. There we go. I oh, saw she, Mackie. Oh, go ahead. She's doing a trip on her own there. So there you go. Uh, Mac, I saw you got the Mud Club newsletter out. Yep, I haven't got it posted on the club site, but all the uh, members should have gotten theirs. Mm-hmm. Yep, it came in. Hey, Darren, I got a message here from Nick. Uh, apparently, there were a couple of presenters he wanted to touch briefly on for the show. If you don't mind, nope. I'm going to nope. go ahead and read them off. Do real briefly. Again, this is for the uh, Shipwreck Festival in Ann Arbor on February 29th. We also have a cave diving adventure history with Lamar Hines. Uh, we're going to have Eric Pekovic. He's a writer and diver. He's going to tell us about lost tales of death and survival. And then we're also going to have Forgotten Souls of 1913 put on by Mike Lynch, Cindy Lynch, and Chris Roth. And then we also have Rudy Whitworth coming in and talking about uh, Mabol. Kapilai and the world famous uh, Sifadon. I probably obliterated those names there, but uh, yeah, you did you did better than I would have. <laughs> but we have a group coming in talking about coral reefs, walls, blue water, big animals, and so we, we will have oh, and a little bit of muck diving. So, I guess we, we we were talking about some salt water as well here at the show. So, I want to touch on those real quick here. Very nice. Karen's make, making that, that uh, hard to turn down that Megalodon 2 thing there. Talking about getting together and doing an Airbnb and uh, get a nice private charter with six divers offshore, about 90 feet of water. I've never done the deep water. I've done the rivers, which is which is a blast in itself. If you like river diving, being in the currents and dropping down to the bottom and finding them. Uh, I bet there's a little less alligators out there, Mac, at, the, at 90 feet, though. Probably. You know, I will dive quite, you know, 38 degree water, no problem here in the Great Lakes. I've been doing a wetsuit, but you're not getting me in the water with alligators. It's just not happening. Sorry, guys. <laughs> nope. Well, that's a good thing. That's a, that's part of our selling point. You know, we've got the preserves. We're getting stuff buoyed. Uh, I guarantee you will not be attacked by an alligator or a uh, shark in the Great Lakes. Yeah, there is nothing here that is going to eat you, okay? Now, I'm, I'm not saying anything bad about salt water, but uh, I'm just plugging fresh water. Nothing here that's going to eat you. So. Other than and, okay, send, send your hate mail to, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Mac, I, we probably talked over you. Did you have a safety story for this week? or? Yep, if you want it, we got it. Sure, let's go ahead and do it. Okay. 
I was going to say we could take, what is it, uh, Mo, Curly, and Larry, but I won't name the divers. While sailing in the Caribbean, three fellow divers decided to dive a wreck that dove during a similar sailing trip several years ago. I was the most experienced diver, about 25 years worth, and had assisted with teaching scuba classes for many years while in college. Three other divers had fewer than 10 to 20 dives each. One diver had a history of ultra-sensitive gag reflex and was uncomfortable with the regulator in his mouth. He had purchased a full face mask and tried it once before this trip. Should he encounter an out-of-air situation, he would have to completely remove the mask to buddy breathe. I recommended to him to place a regular dive mask around his neck when diving the full face rig, so if he needed it and needed to remove the full face mask, he would be able to put on a regular mask, something I had learned in cave diver training. On the day of the particular wreck dive, the diver with the full face did not want to bother with carrying a spare mask. Upon entering the water, the divers were so enthralled with the wreck, they all seemed to go in different directions. I corralled them back together and tried to get the three to follow more closely, but the excitement was getting to them, and they all still wandered a bit from each other. Now, as the dive leader, I was periodically checking individual air gauges, and all four of us were consuming about the same amount of air. After a few times of checking the individual gauges, I began to rely on my gauge to only estimate the air for the group. I mean, they had been tracking pretty close to mine. As my pressure gauge neared 1,000 pounds, we were moving along the wreck and gradually ascending from a depth of 80 feet to around 60 feet. I began to look around for a mooring line that we could follow up for controlled ascent. The current on the wreck was strong enough that I did not want to try a free ascent, especially with the number of other boats anchored around the wreck. I quickly found a mooring line and noted that that was at 900 PSI. I thought we could all do a safety stop at 15 for a few minutes. As I looked around, I saw the diver with the full face mask quickly swimming towards me, signaling that he was out of air. I quickly retrieved my octopus as he removed the full face mask and met me at the mooring line. Since the diver did not have a spare mask, he had to pinch his nose, close his eyes, and concentrate on breathing with water in his face. He was anxious to ascend, but he was breathing okay. So, I controlled our ascent rate. We did ascend a little bit quickly, but not dangerously so. On the surface, he was fine. Upon reaching the surface, we saw the other two divers on the mooring line below us making a safety stop. But, now in retrospect, I should have done things, several things, very differently. Number one, I should have insisted that the diver with the full face mask bring along a spare mask. Also, I should have forced the group to stay closer together. And I should have been more forceful at monitoring air consumption on all the divers. It turns out the diver with the full face mask was consuming quite a bit more air, especially as the tank emptied. On other divers during our trip, he was always the first one out of air, and I wonder if he was using the full face mask caused him a bit higher air consumption. Now, no adverse effects were noticed by any of the divers, and we made three more dives through the week on our boat. On later dives, the group followed much more closely, and we monitored air consumption quite a bit more often. Now, the comments from groups and himself. Comments. Diving from a small private boat without formal organization when compared with diving in formal groups carries a greater risk of incident. 
It's like similar, you know, if you fly on an unscheduled flight on a small aircraft in comparison with scheduled flights on large aircraft or jet airliners. One, you have a lot less coordination. When you're diving with friends, you tend to allow more leeway with the friends, or in some cases, you may take more responsibility, whereas they should be taking responsibility for themselves. You're not the dive professional working with a customer. In this case, a more experienced diver took responsibility for checking the gauges of the other divers instead of having them do it to themselves. He did the right thing and taken on the responsibility of checking his buddies' cages, but the people should have that own responsibility. The diver with a hypersensitive gag reflex is at a higher risk of drowning if his reflex occurs underwater. He thought a full face would be a solution, but he did not practice enough using it before the dive trip. In addition, he did not take other precautions to avoid an out-of-air situation. Removing the full face mask underwater and using another regulator that the diver was not used to could have provoked a gag reflex in somebody who is hypersensitive. Maintaining contact between divers in the group is important, but it does not make up for incompetence of individuals in the group. A diver who cannot read his own gauges should be considered incompetent. An informed risk assessment for the group of divers like this won't have precluded diving in remote locations. Divers failed to assess the risk properly and exposed themselves to undue risk. The fact that nothing serious happened does not justify such behavior. One of the articles from Dan's on items that they have had reported to them. I think we've all noticed that a little bit, that when we dive with our friends, especially if they are younger, meaning do not have the same experience, we quite often, I won't say baby them, but we will dive with them, but try to keep track of them. But mm-hmm. trying to do that with three divers is a little hard. I like one-on-one. I There's a, a lot of articles that odd numbers are terrible for dive groups, for, you know, for buddies. You know, two or four, you know, as long as you've got, you can get people who are kind of connected, that seems to work. But three, I think if uh, somebody went and looked through the numbers, I bet you three is a common combination where somebody really isn't the buddy in that situation. I I know when we used to dive St. Clair, you had a buddy because you could not keep track of three or four people. Well, what I noticed, because especially with us, we're, uh, you know, we've got some good diving conditions on occasion, but there's also many times where uh, it's limited. You know, it, it fades in and out. You'll be diving on a wreck. Uh, I'm thinking of the Havana right now. And there's times where we'll be going three or four divers, and I can only see a diver at a time. Now, the diver in the middle, he can see both of us. But uh, if if one of us happened to be a new diver or a rookie diver, uh, who's he watch? You know, because if you, you stop for a second and the other diver swims out of out of vision. Uh, you're not his buddy. Not anymore. I think the, the item I carry away from most of this anymore, I mean, I dive solo a lot. Yeah. And I take an alternate supply with me. Not a second regulator, but a second system. It, to me, it, it seems like even a spare air with three breaths give you a chance when something like this would happen. And not just the full face aspect, but running out of air situation. When you know you've got a couple of breaths, 
you don't have that tendency to panic, which is what's going to kill you. Yeah, that, that panic, that rushing to the surface, uh, that's going to do you in. Thank you very much. That's a good article. And I do have a shipwreck of the week, if you like. Yep, let's hear it. <laughs> you know, at some point I'm going to have to go through the past episodes and uh, tally up which wrecks I've already had for shipwreck of the week. So uh, forgive me if this is a duplicate. Uh, it's one I'm a little bit biased about because it's one of my favorites. And tonight we're going to talk about the Ann Arbor number five. Now, this is a, uh, it's actually only half of a shipwreck, but it's a really cool half. And I'm taking information tonight off of uh, michiganshipwrecks.org. That is uh, MS Michigan Shipwreck Research Association's website. And they have a pretty nice write up on the Ann Arbor number five. And the Great Lakes Car Ferry Anna Number no. 5 was built at the Toledo Shipbuilding Company in Toledo, Ohio. It's hull 118. She was 360 feet long, 56, three feet, 56 feet beam, and 19-foot draft. She was launched November of 1910. At that time, she was the largest ferry on the, on the Great Lakes. Uh, it's also the fir- first launch of the Seagate a safety device designed to keep water from flooding in over the stern. Uh, they had found that these car ferries did have a problem with, uh, during storms, uh, water washing over the stern. The uh, Pier Marquette 18 uh, had sunk previously and uh, with the loss of all life on that one. And uh, But they did, did find, a, oh, there was a radio call on that boat before it went down, and they believe that the, uh, you know, the, Lack of a Seagate was a real issue on that, so a result of the sinking of the Pyramid 18 meant adding Seagates onto these boats. Um, I'm just going to kind of breeze over the article from here, but I can tell you that the uh, boat uh, was put into service in 1910 and uh, had a long career. Uh, it must have had a couple, series of great captains on her because she was not involved in any major accidents. Uh, the boat ended up being used as a break wall during the construction of Palisades Power Plant in South Haven, Michigan. The uh, construction took uh, two years to to build, and during that time they had several derelict boats sitting out front of the uh, power plant to prevent the ice and storms from doing damage to the the, uh, fragile plant while being built. And then in the uh, spring of of 1970, uh, they were... They were going to scrap the boat, and uh, Boltima Salvage Company, uh, they began cutting the boat up, found the bow section was pretty well mangled by the ice, but they believed that the stern section could be floated and uh, towed across to Waukegan, Illinois for scrapping. Well, they were wrong. <laughs> the uh, They got the uh, boat going uh, under tow across to Waukegan, and they had pumps in the hull. Uh, keeping what water leaking in out, but apparently a weld or two gave away en route, and approximately six miles out front of Palisades Power Plant, it got away from them and down it went. And from what I understand, this boat, when it hit the bottom, it hit so hard, the people on the surface heard it hit bottom. Now, this is a truly spectacular wreck to dive. I know perhaps you're a little skeptical because I'm talking only about being a half, the stern half of a ship. Well, this boat is impaled into the bottom. 
So it is one of the eeriest things to come across when you dive this boat, seeing the stern section sticking up at a 30-degree angle from the bottom. The rudder, the propellers, all the railroad tracks, a lot of the attachment points, the um, capstans, no, not the capstan, the, the, the uh, bollards are there. Bollards are what you uh, tie the boat off to a, to a large dock. Um, there's, there's machinery present. This is a really, really cool dive. Now, you have to do it with some caution because the bottom there is 158 feet deep. Actually, with the, all the water raging, probably 162 feet deep now with all the rain we've had. Yeah, but uh, a little bit. Yeah, yeah, but the uh, you reach the high point on the wreck at about 110 feet. Uh, as I recall, the mid shaft, the, the shaft on the propellers, puts you at about 130, and that's about, about your limit there for sport diving. Uh, but you now this is a really this is kind of the pride of the uh, Southwest Michigan Underwater Preserve for a dive. Because uh, when you come across this thing, it's not something you're ever going to forget. Usually, really decent visibility there too. You know, I've been there and had 100 foot visibility. Although 50 foot is pretty common, um, you have some great uh, photo opportunities around the propellers. You know, it's really cool to put a, a diver up by that propeller and take a shot. That's the the classic Ann Arbor Five shot as a diver by their by the props because the props are 12 and a half feet in diameter and your diver is maybe half that. So uh, I say this is a phenomenal wreck to dive and it's yeah, kind of if you're looking for that Instagram post <laughs> of yourself that you can't beat that by the props. Yeah, if you uh, you know, go online and you search for this this shipwreck, you know, it's the Ann Arbor number five. Like I say it's a railroad car ferry built in nineteen ten and uh lost in nineteen seventy. So it's it's a relatively recent loss. Um but it's a it, it, it's a wreck dive you will not forget. It, it is one which uh we intend to have buoyed officially this season. Uh, not quite sure when the buoy will be up. But it is one which is in the works for this season. Yeah. And if people want to donate to help buoy that wreck, where would they go? Uh, let's see, uh, michiganpreserves.org. Uh, excuse me. South uh, For that one particular, it's going to be um, Southwest Michigan Underwater Preserve. You can uh, find us on Facebook. We have several Facebook pages there. But uh, you'll see links to donate for that one there. Look, looking forward to seeing that one on a uh, to get buoyed because that that's always been a challenge in the past to buoy that wreck because it's uh, somebody's got to kind of uh, go to the you have to have a tech diver with you to originally get the the buoy on it and then they've got to come up the wreck and and that one typically has been in the past unofficially buoyed right to the wreck. As yeah. a side note on that wreck. Uh -huh. Years and years ago, meaning recently after it sank, I saw a video of that sinking when they were towing it out and when the pumps failed on board and it actually sank. I wish I could find where that video is now. I'd love <clears> to see <throat> that video. I would love to see that video. I'll pay money for that video. That's what I'm saying. If I can find out where that video I'm trying to remember, one, where I saw the video. Because back then you didn't have the internet. <laughs> yeah. well, and when you say video, that was probably a eight millimeter, wouldn't it have been? Yeah. It would have been, yeah. been film. Yeah, it was film. 
Yeah, and it, it sounds like this one, uh, I'm reading here on MSRA's site that it may have been found by Dick Race shortly after the sinking, and uh, then it was forgotten about, and then uh, they came across it again when they were searching for 2501, which is a uh, lost DC-4 uh, commercial airliner that went down in 1950, 1950 or 1951. Uh, at the time, it was the uh, greatest loss of life in America on, a, on an airline. But, uh, yeah, it's a it's a cool dive. Uh, if you ever get a chance to get out to that one, it's highly recommended. Hello? Oh, excellent. Thank you very much. That was a good uh... – the wreck that is that is actually one of my favorite wrecks. I think it's kind of close between, uh, and it depends kind of on the conditions and what your mood is. But uh, Ann Arbor Ann Arbor Five is is a great wreck. I love coming down that, and I dove once where my favorite is when the visibility is just enough where you can't see the surface, but when you come down on the wreck, you can see the wreck in the bottom, and it just kind of lays out, and you feel like you're you're in another world where you can like you shouldn't be able to see it that way i should also mention that uh this wreck does have penetrate you know it, it can be penetrated uh, by those who are qualified and uh i only know of one guy who's done it that's actually uh, jeff boss who's uh, been inside it and he'll do his best to talk you out of going inside it it's not just because he wants the title of the only guys ever gone inside but it's because it's actually a very dangerous penetration here uh, you've really only got one way in one way out which is you know a bad thing you know a no-no when it comes to right penetration um, you know there are those who are qualified to do that i realize i'm not one of them the uh but it's i've, I've looked inside it uh Jeff will tell you about when you, when he was inside it, that it silts up really bad in there, and it's uh, lots of places to to trap your line if you're gonna if you run a reel. It's uh, you know there's not anything really to see in there because the boat was gutted and stripped before it was you know it was a derelict it was being it was taken out to the dump, it's gonna be scrapped. So there's really nothing in there worth risking your neck by going inside. So uh, I'm not going to tell you how to get in how to get in the thing, but I'm going to tell you, don't go in the thing. So no, it's it, it's not worth it. I've I've heard a few stories of of uh, activities that way, and it's I know very lucky that uh, the people didn't have a worse outcome. I know when Jeff went in it, he uh, had to come out through one of the uh, viewing port. Well, one of the uh, oh, there's a top to, I think we have a stairwell or a, there's a little port in the top of it. Actually, if you look at uh, the Southwest Mission and Water Preserve Facebook page, there is a picture of Bob Underhill looking down inside this tiny little hole, which is probably only about um, 18 inches across. That's the hole that Jeff Voss had to come out of. And it's one of those deals where you take off your tank, pass it out through the hole, Climb your hopefully skinny butt through that hole. Put your put your uh, rig back on and ascend. And I guess he had you know, racked up a tremendous amount of decompression by that point. So uh, not recommended. <laughs> really not yeah. recommended at all. When you said skinny butt, that means I wasn't fitting through the hole. So I I didn't say that, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but 
it wasn't going to happen. So, but it's a, it's a beautiful wreck. I I love that wreck. It's it's one of those that I. It's a sad on these many years I haven't been able to get back out there. But there's that one, and then the, it, what's nice about that is if you come out of South Haven, you can hit that wreck, and then you can hit the barge and crane. So there's two nice uh, dives you can get in the same day. Yeah, the uh, the barge and crane is actually uh, six miles from the pier head. You're kind of going not, you know, due west. You're kind of going almost at about a you know, 45 degree angle out of South Haven. Uh, I want to say in that 270 that you're probably running at about, uh, you know, probably about 200 degree coming out of South Haven pier head. And yeah, you, you hit the, the barge at six miles and you hit the Ann Arbor at nine miles. And you continue past the Ann Arbor another six miles, and you come to the Farnham and the uh, and the Dutton. They're kind of all on the same line like that right there. Very nice. Glad to share. Very cool wrecks so up here. So hopefully everybody's enjoying the podcast. If you want to keep following us, you can follow us on Twitter at ScoobObsessed. We're on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash ScoobObsessed. Website is www.scubobsessed.com. That was three W's, not the two I slaughtered. And then uh, Patreon support. We certainly appreciate it. It keeps us going. We've just renewed for another year. So we are entering our 11th season of doing the podcast. We do at least 40 episodes a year, sometimes more. Some, I don't know if we've done. I don't think we've ever done less than 40. Um. Uh, so we'll get these episodes out. Anybody have anything else they want to plug? Yes. I'm good. I'm good for the night myself. I would like to uh, remind our listeners that uh, as much as we love the Internet, you know, and we draw much of those podcasts on the Internet, a lot of our references are, and uh, every diver likes to get a good deal. We all like those good deals online. But keep in mind, those good deals online are not going to uh, keep filling your scuba tanks. And uh, or service, I guess you can get your regulator serviced online, but it's I like doing that in a face-to-face transaction myself. But support your local dive shops because uh, we need them. They're gonna they're gonna they're gonna fill your tanks for you, and they don't make any money filling those tanks. By the way, you look at the cost of uh, what it takes to maintain a compressor; they're they're not making any money doing that. So support your local dive shops, please. Yeah, and. With that, this time of year, if you're not going to get any ice diving in, which hopefully we'll be able to start seeing some of that happening here this month, even though we haven't had a lot of snow, they got a storm warning coming in as we speak. But uh, hopefully we get some ice being built and we can get some ice dives in. Uh, if you're not going to partake in that, drop your gear off the dive shops. It's the best time of year to get your gear serviced, at least here in the northern half of the U.S. Uh, because they can get it serviced and have it ready. And then when it gets nice in the spring, you can drop right on in the water and get to doing some diving. So I Absolutely. think we are approaching that time of the show. Are you guys ready? Ever ready. Would it make a difference if I said no? No, we would go there anyway. All right, go there anyway. <laughs> Alex had a terrible day of fishing on the lake, sitting in the blazing sun all day, which must have been a while ago, without catching a single one. <laughs> On his way home, he stopped at a fishmonger and ordered four rainbow trout. 
He told the fishmonger, pick up four large ones out and throw them at me, will you? Why do you want me to throw them at you? Asked the salesman. So I'm able to tell my wife in all honesty that I caught them, said Alex. Okay, but I suggest you take the salmon. Why is that? Because your wife came in earlier today and said if you came by, I should tell you to take the salmon. That's what she like for supper tonight. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. So I, I think he was found out. Uh, I'm guessing that wasn't his first time trying that trick. <laughs> hey, he was trying to be truthful. Yeah. Yeah, we got it's all, it's all in the details. Yeah, just a little. There you go. Well, I'm, so I I'm imagine at, the little white rapper probably gave it away to the wife, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Boy, butcher paper. Who who takes butcher paper out there? <laughs> so uh, go out there and get wet. And stay safe. And stay safe. And, and have a good time doing it. Craig out. Thank everybody who was on tonight. Thanks the chat room. Thanks for Nick coming on and hopefully the Ford Seahorses has a great show.